this episode of Addiction Audio. My name is Chloe Burke and I am an SSA funded PhD student based at the University of Bath and I am delighted to be joined by Dr Jamie Hartman-Boyce. Jamie would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely, so I am Jamie Hartman-Boyce. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford and I work very closely with Cochrane. It's great to have you here, Jamie. Um, So you're going to talk us through a recent paper published in Addiction alongside Dr. Nicola Linson, and it's called Assessing and Minimising Risk of Bias in Randomised Controlled Trials of Tobacco Cessation Interventions, Guidance from the Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group, which is a lovely, long and very clear title. So just to kick things off, for those that aren't familiar with Cochrane, could you give us like a brief introduction to the tobacco addiction group and the work that you do? Absolutely. So Cochrane is a global nonprofit that exists to help people making healthcare and health policy decisions do that with the best available evidence to hand. And we do that through systematic reviews, which follow a rigorous very long set of methods for how we conduct these. And and that guidance is all kind of topic agnostic. So Cochrane covers all topics within healthcare. The Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group focuses specifically on, as you might imagine, tobacco addiction related interventions and questions. Fantastic. So systematic reviews and meta-analyses are your your bread and butter. Absolutely. Yeah. So we we obviously know that that's sort of top of the hierarchy, right? So if we can get a nice synthesis of well-conducted randomized controlled trials, that's a really good place to start. But it is an inherently tricky job to do a really good randomized controlled trial. So risk of bias assessments is something that we really need to pick that evidence apart. Um, There are lots of tools out there, but this guidance you've written is very specific to tobacco cessation trials. Why is that important and what kind of motivated you to write this? Yeah, so Cochrane Risk of Bias 1 tool first came out about 10 years ago. And we found as an editorial group, we were supporting authors doing their reviews um, to use this tool. But it's generic. The tool has to be generic. It has to fit kind of any trial of any intervention. And so there were specific details that we wanted to make sure people were reflecting on and capturing when it came to studies of cessation interventions, which are what most of our reviews have been on traditionally. Um, We wanted this to make sure people were assessing it well, but also to put in some sort of consistency across our reviews so that the different Mm -hmm. other teams working on them were, were broadly using the same criteria. And so back 10 or more years ago now, I wrote up a Word document that kind of outlined these various domains and considerations. Um, And we'd just been sending it out to our authors to use. And then my brilliant colleague, Dr. Nicola Linton, was like, maybe we should just publish it. Because people kept on being like, how do I link to it? How do I reference it? And we're like, oh, we actually just send you this Word document. So on the back of that, we decided to formalize it by publishing it. So people who do use our methods can say, we use these methods and they have something that they can refer readers to. Fantastic. So it's been around for about 10 years, but this is now online. Exactly. Exactly. And um, you mentioned there the Cochrane tool called Risk of Bias 1. So you you base your guidance on this. Um, For anyone that's not familiar to help them visualise what that might involve, could you give us like a quick explanation of what that tool is? Yes. So the idea with that tool, as with almost all risk of bias tools nowadays, is that for every study included in your review, 
you're assessing it based on its risk of bias across a number of key domains. So areas where you think a study could go wrong and introduce bias. And with the Cochrane Risk of Bias 1 tool, what you're saying for each of those domains is, is the information provided kind of reassuring me that mm-hmm. this would there's really very little risk that bias has crept in via, let's say, how participants were randomized, in which case it would be low. Is it telling you actually there's a glaring issue, in which case it's high risk, or is it not giving you enough information with which to judge? You know, So there are a lot of papers that just say participants were randomized on a one-to-one basis to intervention or control, and then you don't know how it was done. So you don't know if it's low risk or high risk, and then you might go with an unclear rating. And then what we do in the Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group, and what many people do, is we use that information to then kind of categorize a study overall as being at low, unclear, or high risk of bias. And the idea behind that is that having an overall categorization can help us understand our findings. It can help us do sensitivity analyses where we might remove studies at high risk of bias. It can help us think through the body of literature as a whole. And what we mean by overall risk of bias is if it's at low risk, it has to be judged to be low across all domains. Okay. A judgment of high risk in at least one domain means it's high risk overall because it only takes one thing to go wrong for a study to be kind of biased throughout. An unclear risk means you don't have any high judgments, but you have one or more unclear judgments. Okay. It's quite strict, isn't it, that criteria? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Important, though, for for the reviews that you're producing. And um, are you surprised ever at how many studies just don't tend to provide that information um, to assess it? And how does that link in to, um, to the guidance that you produced? Uh, I'm not surprised anymore. I was surprised when I started. But of course, you know, a lot of people aren't reporting in a huge amount of detail. It's gotten better now that people are pre-registering their protocols a lot, for instance. But the reality is, you know, if you're writing for a journal, you have a word count. You're writing up results yeah. from sometimes a large trial. Do you think what your reader is going to be most interested in is the software package you use to generate your random sequence? Probably not. So, like, I don't blame the authors in this case either. I understand why those don't end up making it into the final product. But that's why linking to something like a protocol is really useful. And I suppose we felt like there were a lot of trials out there where we couldn't make informed judgments. Or we thought, oh, I bet they didn't know that that places them at high risk. But it does. So it was Nicola's idea when we published this guidance to also put alongside it some guidance for trialists of how to kind of ensure that they were reducing risk of bias in their actual conduct of the trial and also that they were reporting things clearly enough so we could make informed judgments on our end. Yeah, really nice. So um, what they did, how they did it, and then you can just really clearly go through and then assess the risk of bias. Exactly. Um, And there are some issues that you highlight um, within the piece that are not specific to cessation trials. So um, things like using a method to randomise that's truly random. But then you go into depth on issues which are sort of tobacco cessation trial uh, related. And the first couple were actually terms I hadn't come across before. So I'm going to have to get you to run me through those. So we've got performance bias and detection bias, which you highlight as being linked to the blinding process in the trials. Could you talk us through these terms? Absolutely. So for anyone who really wants to learn more about what we mean by this, (laughs) a resource I'd recommend is the Catalogue of Bias, which is kind of developed by the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and lists tons and tons and tons of different types of bias. But 
They define performance bias as being specific to differences that occur due to knowledge of interventions allocation, either in the researcher or participants. This results in differences in the care received by the intervention and control groups in a trial other than the intervention that are being compared. And the example they give is that participants in the control group might seek other treatments or researchers or clinicians might treat participants differently depending on which group they're on. And this can bias potentially inflate the estimated effect of an intervention, particularly in trials with subjective outcomes. So that's very wordy. That's me kind of verbatim (laughs) reading it, but I wanted to make sure I got that definition right. If we use a tobacco-specific example, the idea here could be that... um, So a very clear example here when it comes to participants are waitlist control trials, which often sound like a great idea because you're like, well, everyone's going to get the intervention in the end where the control participants know they're in a wait list. So it's like, oh, we have this great new cessation intervention. Half of you are going to get it now. And the other half of you, don't worry, we're telling you right now you're going to get it in six months. And what that might do is make people less likely to quit smoking in those six months than they would have been otherwise. Because they might think, oh, I'm actually going to wait until I get access to this exciting new intervention and because that will essentially dampen the number of people quitting in the control group it might make the intervention group look more effective than it actually is so that's one example another example um can be in terms of kind of study staff or the staff looking after participants where if they know that their participant is on this new drug that's been really hyped up, they might be asking participants more about their experiences of quitting smoking and how they're finding it and offering them advice than the participants who they know aren't being given anything as part of an intervention. Very thoroughly explained. Thank you, Jamie. And could you also run us through the other key bias that you mentioned in the paper, which you refer to as detection bias? That's right. The idea behind detection bias isn't that it changes the actual behavior, but it affects our ability to detect it. Okay, Um, so the catalog of bias, for what it's worth, describes (laughs) detection bias as systematic differences between groups and how outcomes are determined. So this means that like a test or treatment for a disease might perform differently according to some characteristic of the study participant, which in this case might be what group they're assigned to. And that may influence the likelihood of disease detection or effectiveness of the treatment. And the most obvious example here from smoking cessation is if you are in a study where one group is receiving, for example, in-person behavioral support to help them quit smoking and the other group isn't, receiving any of that support, that can cause differences in terms of those people reporting their smoking status. So if you have kind of no investment in the study, right, no one's kind of given you anything extra, you've been totally in the control group, um, you might be more likely to report that you are still smoking then if someone's invested quite a lot of time in you, you've developed a relationship with the research staff, the study staff, and then they ask you as part of your follow-up, are you still smoking? And you say, mm-hmm. no, because essentially we're all humans and many of us want to please people we've developed relationships with. So the idea there isn't that the underlying outcome is different, but the way that that outcome is detected and reported might be because of the group someone's assigned to. 
That makes sense. And I thought it was really interesting in the piece that you highlighted that some people looking at behavioural interventions because of the issues with the fact that it's so tricky to just hide what condition you're in, that they might choose to just not try and pick up on some of these biases. So they might leave it out of their assessment um, because you can end up with that situation where it's just red crosses across the board and you can't really pick out any nuance between certain studies and it, it sort of hinders if you want to do, as you said, maybe sensitivity analysis where you take some studies out. Um, and I think it highlights how we do need to be flexible and we need to adapt these tools rather than just apply them in a very fixed and rigid way. Um, what were some of the key recommendations that you had for people either setting up or reviewing um, these behavioural interventions? It's a great question. It's really tricky. Um, I am very pragmatic, perhaps too pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, this is something that we get criticized for. And we've been like picked up on in peer review and stuff. This, this thing about do you assess how you assess risk of bias in, in trials of behavioral interventions. What I'd first say is if that were if we're talking smoking cessation, we should always be assessing detection bias because the best way to minimize that issue with differential misreport is to biochemically validate. Yeah. So if we're doing biochemical validation, then that's great. And even if you have differential levels of support, as long as people are being followed up in the same way, it's an objective outcome measure, right? So that kind of helps guard us against detection bias. So I would always say, even if it's all behavioral interventions, go ahead and assess detection bias. Mm -hmm. Performance bias, it depends on why you're assessing risk of bias to some extent, right? Um, And if you're assessing it to look at variation between studies and how that might influence effect estimates, then it doesn't really make sense to apply a criteria which from the start, no studies are ever going to live up to and all of your studies are going to be at high risk of bias. Um, However... There are things that we can do in studies of behavioral interventions or when we're assessing them that even if it's essentially unblinded, are thought to reduce the risk of performance bias. And one of the most obvious ones of these is giving what broadly speaking we might call intensity matched interventions. Okay. So that could be the case where, let's say you are testing an e-cigarette to help people quit smoking. People know that they're getting the e-cigarette. But the other group is getting another active treatment like nicotine replacement therapy. Both groups are getting the same amount of face-to-face contact, the same positive messaging around the intervention. In that case, that's a way you can help reduce performance bias. You're not eliminating it, but giving an active intervention as opposed to just giving nothing will certainly help. If you're looking at a purely behavioral intervention, what you sometimes see in studies is people matching contact time, but talking about Mm -hmm. something else like healthy lifestyle, physical activity, you know, trials in women seem to often do it about like women's health and breast screening and stuff like that. So you're still getting a lot of contact and support, um, but just not the active intervention. Um, so that's okay. that's one way to think about it. The other thing that sometimes people do, and this really depends on your study, whether or not it's feasible, is they try to make sure that the control participants who aren't receiving the intervention don't know that. Ah, right? okay. And that's tricky because you need to have in- informed consent. So it's it depends like what country and what ethics system you're under in terms of this. But there are ways that you can 
kind of phrase it so that everyone feels they're getting an intervention. It doesn't really work if they're people who know each other in the trial. But where you see this sometimes happening is, let's say, like, trials of internet-based interventions. Um, You could say, we're testing a web-based intervention for smoking cessation. You'll be randomized, blah, blah, blah. And the intervention group might receive some sort of really intensive, like, let's say, virtual web counseling from a counselor. And the other group might receive a link to, you know, a health foundation, heart foundations, guidance on how to quit smoking. Both of those groups are receiving a web-based intervention. And the one that's just receiving the kind of one page of information doesn't necessarily know that there was something more they could have received. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, It all sounds um, very complicated from a person setting up the, like a person setting up that trial to consider all of these things and bring them all together. And I guess that's one of the aspects that sometimes can be a barrier to someone performing a randomized controlled trial of a cessation intervention, as well as the other things like cost and time. Of course. your piece focuses on randomized trials because that's a lot of what Cochrane works with and it's some of the best quality evidence that we have. But obviously there is a reasonable portion of evidence that does come from things like cohort studies and non-randomized trials, which is still important evidence to look at. Um, but do we have the the tools that we need to unpick bias in the same way in those studies? Or would you say that's something that we need to work on more when it comes to cessation tobacco cessation interventions so we have generic tools from cochrane on that and from others as well um i think we need to do more work on it yeah work yeah so we for example don't have specific guidance that's tobacco specific when it comes to non-randomized trials um and i think to a certain extent so we're we're doing a project at the moment where we're looking at the relationship between vaping and availability of e-cigarettes in young people and subsequent smoking. So among other things, looking at the potential for a gateway effect. And one of the things that we've kind of had to do with that is adapt an existing risk of bias tool to be specific to this type of study and this type of research question. Um, So yeah, there are so many different questions that can be asked and so many different ways that bias can be introduced depending on what you're studying. And and this is just the the kind of simplest tip of the iceberg was starting with the randomized (laughs) controlled trials. Absolutely. There's there's probably lots of people doing that same process, aren't there? They're taking a risk of bias tool and they're adapting it to their specific question. It's a shame that there isn't like a central way that you can pull that all together just because you could look through maybe and you could be doing a review of non-randomized cessation interventions and it would be nice to have a way to just look at what everyone else has done and see if there's some standardized way that we can pick up on different prompts and things like that. Yeah, that would be lovely. (laughs) Go do it, Chloe. Oh, no. (laughs) I volunteer again. Um, I think that's everything from us this episode. So um, thank you so much, Jamie, for coming along to speak about your fantastic new piece published in Addiction. Thanks, everyone, for listening and stay tuned for next episode. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you.